This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this episode, we're doing a wrap on our public media series. We're going to look back at some of the things that stuck out to us, and we're going to kind of put the various interviews we've had into conversation and talk about what we learned, what we found interesting, hopefully takeaways that you as the listener had as well. We've had great conversations with people expert in many different facets of public radio. Now, when we started this, it wasn't our intention to dive deeply into radio without any discussion of television. And I also wonder if the story would have been much different if we would have talked about television. How so? Well, although I am a pretty heavy public radio listener, I I was surprised, actually, by the level of innovation that we heard about. And as I thought about it, a lot of that possibility comes from being an audio medium. So something like the arrival of podcasts as a significant audio form is really tightly related to the low costs or economically the barriers of entry of audio media in a digital age. Now, I I do follow public television less closely, but given the very real limits of, of their budgets to start with, I just have less of a sense that PBS has been able to be as innovative or to move aggressively into new types of video and not been able to pursue the same kind of experimentation and innovation of radio. Well, I wonder if that has to do with kind of the cost of entry for something like that. Like, video carries a much higher cost than radio, and, I mean, podcast distributing can be free. I mean, it's much easier to kind of distribute something like that into the world and it probably makes it easier for public radio stations to be able to enter these digital fields of play. Right. And so since we haven't had the TV interviews and, and dove into analysis and information in the same way, I don't want to make the argument that this is something that only benefits audio and not TV. But I mean, maybe just the focus here is really on what great opportunity digital tools have brought to public audio systems, whether it's public radio and and where podcasts fit in that. But we really are seeing tremendous change in both the types of shows, the number of shows, the nature of the address. All of those things are really substantive changes that we're we're finding for public radio. And that's that's notable. It really is. I mean, if you look at our series, most of our interviews talked about changes in distribution and evolution in some form. I mean, let's kind of bring in, you know, let's go out of order a little bit and talk about Tamar Charney Mm -hmm. and her interview. She works for NPR One, which is an app. That is not something that a public radio station could have done five, six years ago. But now, like, they have, NPR has this app. And it's a new technology that they're playing with. And it it really, from what she said, kind of opens up the possibilities of what they can do. That's a good point. And I don't know that we know in 2017 really you know, exactly the relationship of apps and radios in the long run. But I think, you know, how do we need to understand this? We can understand the app as a form of digital distribution. It's also a much more personalized way for listeners to engage media and to have media served to them. And so in many ways, if we go back to the founding of less public media here, because we did it so late, um, but... (laughs) Although we're doing this series on the 50th anniversary of that founding of public media. But I think the notion of broadcasting was where public media has its roots. And in many ways, something like the app and a lot of the shows that we were discussing that bring new voices, new creativity 
into the the public radio space, it also works very contrary to broadcasting. How so? Oh, because of that narrow address, right? Oh. So I think broadcasting, you know, technologically is sending one signal um, out to many. Okay. And so that's where a schedule came from, and that's where really a lot of the limitation, I think, that we've in the past thought was inherent to radio and inherent to television, but I think actually it's inherent to that distribution technology. And I think you're hitting on something really important here that we heard throughout the series, and especially with both Lynette Clementson and Tamar, it's what podcasts allow people to do is they kind of act as a DVR in a way because you kind of have these podcasts queued up and you can listen to them whenever you want. Like, you don't have to stick to the set on your schedule of all things considered from 4 to 7 on the media at 8. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, don't tell me Saturdays at 11. I, I feel like that's one of the biggest things that kind of came out of this for me was how these technology allowed them to kind of open up their audience to new people who wouldn't necessarily listen to the radio in the linear form. And it's interesting, again, going forward and how these opportunities can expand and may be limited, technology becomes really important here. And also the way in which we access media. Uh, That's kind of vague. Uh, So what I'm thinking about here is this. Um, Data plans and the size of data and the size of a podcast if you were going to download it as opposed to stream it. And so in many ways, I'd say the questions for me that are out there that um, folks at NPR really don't have a lot of control over have to do with the nature of the devices that the technology companies keep making and in many to many degrees um, they've been pushing somewhat to create uh, smaller and uh, more limited memory on the devices in order to get us to buy other things like subscriptions to storage. Um, So that's interesting. Um, And then as well, what the relationship with the service providers are and the data that we use. And so I guess this may be a a marker of my age and use through technology, but I'm still very mindful of how much data I have and um, whether streaming a show off of my Wi-Fi, if I'm outside of my Wi-Fi zone, whether, you know, am I going to use up all my data? And so, you know, I've actually used up all of my data one month and I didn't even know it. And it actually was the podcast app that was the main culprit. So I actually did have to be careful. And I actually turned on like the setting, download this in advance. Mm-hmm. So it actually gets downloaded to my device. But yeah, no, you, you become especially conscious of that when you go over your data and suddenly your phone company is like, hey, you've done this. Here's more charge or here's exactly, a higher right, charge. Right, right. So, I mean, none of these are, are you know, impenetrable barriers or things like that. But these are issues that weren't that didn't used to be part of, of broadcasting. And so while we get these wonderful affordances of convenience that then lead to new types of programming, it, they exist within a broader political economy that, that also comes into play then. Let's go a little bit into kind of Lynette's interview and what really stuck out to us. And that really, one of the biggest takeaways we had involved voice. How podcasts and how digital technology allowed them to bring new voices to the air. And one of the examples she cited was NPR's excellent Code Switch podcast. Right. And I actually, the thing that caught me most in that interview, it's it wasn't just the issue of different voices. In other words, the fact that the the NPR roster has now expanded and um, we're hearing an array or you have the ability to hear from more people representing more backgrounds. But even though I'd been a pretty regular podcast listener, I hadn't thought about just what makes a podcast work and how different that address is in a podcast than it is 
in terms of uh, what was she did she call it broadcast voice or you know like the the way that the you, know, you could present a news story and it's in the regular you know morning edition rundown and it just sounds a certain way and and that it is written a certain way um you know, and we get to John Shields talking about it and really the struggle that the BBC has because the BBC does have this longer history of sort of this voice of god in his words mm-hmm. address and and so that comes with all kinds of weighty you know, journalistic standards and and i think Lynette was right on that really one of the appealing aspects of the podcast isn't simply having someone talk to you about a topic that you're really interested in, but it also has to do with how they talk to you. And that's not an address that would work for a radio show. No, it's not. I mean, you kind of, podcasts allow for longer form discussion. They allow for you to kind of get to know the voices better. I mean, you listen to, for example, maybe Sam Sanders report a story on NPR. You're going to hear him for what, four or five minutes at a time? And then in the podcast, you get him for 40 minutes. You get to know what his tastes are by what stories he chooses. And with the discussion on something like the Code Switch podcast, you get to know the voices that you're hearing. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. And I was just even thinking about you know, some of my my radio listening and sort of the bits of radio that I enjoy the most. And often it is the bits of scheduled NPR in which there is a, dis- a conversation that happens. Mm-hmm. So it's not a pre Prepackaged package, you know, where you know it's all rolled up and clearly has been scripted, um, even if it's it's not recorded live. Just the give and take that happens in the discussion between a reporter and their guest or a couple guests. Uh, it's a different type of storytelling, and and I think it's clear that NPR has figured that out and mm-hmm. is very much running with it. Yeah, on the media is one of my favorite favorite examples of that. Like the four or five interviews they do in a given episode. That also, there's always, or there seems to be throughout this whole digital revolution, this constant expectation of something new replacing something old. And, and again, this is one of those places where we, we see a suggestion that just because podcasts are also audio media doesn't mean that they're going to replace previous forms of audio media. They're doing different things. And so that, I think, is an important thing from a business perspective to also keep on the table. And you also see podcasts going onto the radio like it, it's been a minute, which I think was name dropped in every episode it, of the public. It's only Mi- appropriate that you mention it again. Uh, yeah, of course. That show is now going onto the radio as well. So like you also see podcasts, if they're successful, having public radio stations around the country pick up that podcast to air like they're getting a specific version for radio. Yeah, I'm imagining a, a coming wave of media scholarship that... Uh, uh, analyzes the differences in the storytelling conventions of podcasts from uh, former types of media. And in many, in some ways, you know, some of the storytelling actually just goes back to radio's earlier days when and we listened to radio shows. Yeah, let's transition a little bit to John Shields. And one of the things I really, that stuck out to me in his interview was him talking about voice and him talking about how the BBC kind of, I don't think he used the word struggle, But it's that type of thing where he's talking about what an objective voice means and how to be objective in a story. I mean, maybe it's just the journalist in me, but that, that, I mean, that's something that media around the country is dealing with, the struggle to, like, tell an objective story and how it impacts their reporting. Well, I think that, too, it was the advantage of being able to get some comparison by having John in. The BBC is an institution in the way that no public media in in the United States actually is an institution. It's an institution along the lines of, like, the New York Times here. 
Yes, and I'd say even more so just because, to a degree, the New York Times is located in a specific place. But the BBC is something that touches, you know, cradle to the grave, you know, culture and life in Britain. And, and has for over 100 years. And so because of that, and because of really the way in which it, it um, you know, perceived its mission and has, you know, subtly, you know, adjusted with the times, but I don't think um, NPR ever felt that same gravitas. Um, and so I think the idea and some of the things that John was pointing to in terms of those struggles and, and kind of you know, not running into podcasts, not quite figuring out how to present news and information in a different way. I, I, it makes great sense that that's a struggle and that, that's really interesting. I think one way, you know, in, in some of the innovation reading that I've been doing, uh, one of the things that's recommended is, is the need to really create an entirely different um, office. In some of the business case studies of, the, of where digital has been most effective. It, it hasn't been that like, oh, let's give them some desks and stick them under the stairs, right? Um, and that was actually kind of what happened with print uh, here in the U.S. And, and to really give people um, sort of a mandate to think outside of the existing rules. And some of the ways that you often need to do that is to bring in new blood, you know, sort of people who aren't thoroughly ingrained in the paradigm of the organization. So if you want a new paradigm, you, you need to instill it from the start. That, that's interesting. And I wonder if that's going to change as kind of my generation, those pesky millennials um, come in and because they've grown up in a completely different media environment. And I wonder how that's going to kind of impact the media we have now is when people like me start going in and making journalistic content. I mean, that could very well change the voices of these sir, these media institutions. It may, but remember that for the most part, um, as soon as you enter an institution, you become acculturated to its standards. And so you know, I think these long arcs of change, right? Um, in some ways, we're, we're starting to see some pieces of generational change in the media. But, um, you know, really, that's just the boomers, you know, any, any fading of that generation. So um, I, don't, I don't know that uh, how soon the millennials will be calling the shots. <laughs> Let's go into um, an interview that I'm kind of surprised we haven't mentioned yet. Let's talk about Laura Walker at WNYC. I mean, that interview, which kind of talked about how... WNYC is evolving and distributing its own content. I thought that was a fascinating look at how uh, the largest public radio station in the nation is changing. Yeah, I think what's rich about Walker's interview is that it brought us both the national and the local because... Mm -hmm. By its nature, WNYC isn't, you know, it's it's not like Michigan Radio. Um, it's it's you know, it's much larger. Exactly. Um, and it has many more uh, deep pockets around it to help keep it going. And it so, helps to be in New York City versus, you know, Ann Arbor, Lansing, Flint, Michigan. Well, when most of your funding comes from viewers and listeners like you, when you have more viewers and listeners like you within your range, and I guess, you know, again, coming back to some of this technological shift and difference, is that public radio was so geographically bound because of 
geography, the broadcast signal, right? Do you listen around you? And yes, you know, we've had internet distributed radio for some time, but it, it has never really taken off to a degree um, that I think we're now seeing with um, the exchange of podcasts and really the ability to listen to shows coming out of all different places based on interests. And again, this is where you know, the system that public media is built around in the United States, you know, for a long time I've taught you know, that it's you know, it's it's this complicated thing that was rooted in localism, but because of economies of scale, a lot of that localism has been undercut um, in that so few stations could afford to produce their own programming and they were really having to profit from them either based on the formal license to other stations. And so that meant that there might be someone actually very interested in the show, but maybe they were living in a place that was served by a station where there weren't enough, enough people. And so now you really have this ability to have personal relationships with listeners across the country, um, I know, hypothetically, around the world, uh, in a way that's very different than, again, the system that was built for terrestrial radio. Yeah, um, one of the things that I really appreciated that she said was talking about the importance of local journalism. I mean, that's been something, you know, John Oliver did a segment on it, and you're really kind of seeing a groundswell of support for local journalism. ProPublica has a program where they're sending reporters to local newspapers in order to do investigative journalism. And one of the things I really appreciated was how she said how important these local public radio stations are to their neighborhood. And they're, in some cases, one of the only people doing reporting on the ground. Yeah, now I was listening to another uh, panel discussion of of journalists and, and the future a few weeks ago. And the statistic that was tossed off was something like 21. There are 21 states that don't have, they do not have a journalist in Washington. Wow. Right. And so, you know, the idea that, that the people of those states are not getting any reporting about how... At least not any reporting of their own. Right, but that's the, that's exactly the point. Mm-hmm. Like, so yes, X and Y and Z happens in Washington, and but it's not like... maybe the AP will bring the story to them, but that's not the same. Right. So if there's a journalist covering, let's say, Michigan, they're not going to write a story for Wisconsin about how this piece of legislation affects Wisconsin. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) One more takeaway from Laura Walker, talking about how new technology has made distribution for them easier. WNYC now self-distributes a lot of their programming instead of relying on NPR, like on the media, Radio Lab. Those used to be distributed by NPR, Mm -hmm. But now they're distributed by the own sta- their own station. And Laura talked about how it was really technology becoming cheaper that allowed them to kind of, they didn't need the middleman anymore. And now they're able to kind of reap the benefits of owning their own program. Right. There are pieces of, of uh, this discussion of how the financial relationships between stations and national NPR are both being challenged and perhaps, you know, there are also advantages to be mined. I think that came up in in all three of the U.S. interviews. And I think, so I think with Lynette, we were talking about, you know, some of the concerns because historically, given how much of local stations are funded by listeners like you, that there is still a concern to have a local relationship. Um, And then it came up in in Tamar's uh, interview and sort of talking about concerns that were, you know, there from the outset that um, someone using the app might leave the linear um, 
radio audience and therefore stop giving and supporting a local station and the consequences of that. And, and Laura's in a little bit of a different position, you know, really more taking advantage mm-hmm. of the new technology. And so I think hints came out in both Lynette and, and Tamar's interviews that, that this is a bit of a challenge for these institutions. Yeah. That, um, But I think also important there was, you know, Tamar's note that so that they were seeing with the app so much new listening and hopefully in accord also new giving. And so you know, again, as has been the concern with sort of every industry that's faced this so far, the perception initially is that there's going to be some sort of cannibalization, right? Whoever's listening to the app, well, those are just going to be the people who are moving from the terrestrial. And no, that's not the case. It's a new audience. Right. It's, it's amazing what happens when you make media consumption more convenient and you meet people where they are and provide them with what they actually want, which is ready access. You know, it's just in the same way that, um, you know, the perception of the DVR technology would cannibalize TV viewing, actually what they found is that people with DVRs watched more television. Uh, Why? Again, it was convenient. Yeah, Lynette talking about how the podcast audience was much younger than the linear audience and how it's bringing in those younger people who might not listen to the radio on a daily basis. And it's kind of bringing those people into now the NPR fold. And now they're, you know, Personally, I'm a listener of several NPR podcasts now, and I probably wouldn't be listening to the shows if I had to on the air. Yeah, I wondered a bit, I and mean, I'm sure in some of uh, the data Tamara's access to, they'd be able to sort of suss this out, but I wonder how much of that that piece of age has to do with content versus technology, right? And so the idea that, you know, the content pieces, people who listen to radio, you get that radio voice, that lack of intimacy. And so is that what dissuades younger viewers or younger listeners or makes them feel like it's not for them? Uh, Or is it, does it have to do with lifestyle and that radio isn't an accessible technology uh, and and just the the nature of, of daily life of the podcast is more convenient? Another thing that I found was really interesting was I don't know how aggressively the NPR One app team is looking at data and how that is now a tool uh, very much in NPR's use to better understand what listeners like, how they behave, and you know some of the information that Tamar gave us about you know the way in which they are tweaking podcasts and um, perhaps putting shows in a better position to succeed because they're able to somewhat beta test them. Um, It was really, uh, I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was great to hear that an an institution like NPR was, you know, using the tools in many ways, it sounds like in the same way a company like Netflix does to understand what kind of behavior happens with the content. Well, before that, they had Nielsen ratings, and Nielsen ratings don't tell you exactly how long people listen and what segment, exactly how many people are listening to what segment, when they tune out, what they skip. Like, that's, they have literal data for every person now looking at what they're listening to, and, you know, it's helped them pilot shows. Like, now they're using NPR One as a part of the pilot process for their podcasts. Let's talk about a couple of things that we didn't get to in this series. I mean, you you t- talked at the top about public television, but one thing that we didn't really get to that maybe is worth exploring in the future is kids programming and how critical, especially to public television, the programming they provide to children is for those children who might not have access to an education in 
you know, might not get that preschool pre-K education. They're watching PBS, and that's how they learn certain things. Right, and just in, in one of the biggest stories in that space has to do with Sesame Street leaving PBS and going to HBO. Right. And you know, the reason that happened was because the cost to make Sesame Street was so great that it was it was losing too much money. Why was Sesame Street losing money? It wasn't that people were getting rich working on Sesame Street. It's that educational programming is more expensive to make. When you have educational consultants, when you're figuring out what is the best way to present something so that children learn, uh, there are higher costs than there are you know, around a something that doesn't have as strong of an educational mission. And so you know, it, it is important to acknowledge that that yes, there's all sorts of children's television now, um, much more than there there used to be. On Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network. Right. And just because there's children's television, it's not all created equally. And it's not all educational. It's not all aimed at informing kids and teaching them things. Right. And I hope that those are issues that we can explore moving into the future and the next year of Media Business Matters. And now it's time for the next segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? I just started Ozark on Netflix, so I think I am am exactly one episode in, so I cannot really say anything other than it was interesting and I'd like, I plan to watch episode two. How about you, Alex? What are you watching? I am watching Take Nataro's One Mississippi on Amazon. Now, I started this show mainly because of the accusations against Louis C.K., and I knew mm-hmm. Take Nataro dealt with that in a capacity on their show, or and on her show. And, you know, it's a really, it's another example of voice-driven comedy. We talked last week about better things. Mm-hmm. This really is Take Nataro's show. It's her voice, and it's really interesting as a result. And I'm halfway through their second season right now. They really made an effort in their second season to be more conscious of the social situation. Like, that one, the season was made post-Donald Trump's election. And so they talk about issues like race, and the show's set in Mississippi. So they talk about, like, Tate goes to the hospital to visit her stepdad, and the woman at the desk says, you're gay, or I don't want to let you in. And so they talk about issues like that, and they do it really, really well with a really sharp point of view and I really appreciate that about the show and that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters if you want to learn more about Media Business Matters you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page if you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store all three of those places have our entire public media series so if you're listening to this and you're thinking wait I haven't listened to those interviews you can go back there to find them. And if you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review as it helps new listeners find the show. Amanda, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon with a wrap on This Year in Media. <laughs>